I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. I hope you all had a great Easter break and was able to enjoy some time away from your very busy workload. I know it's been such a difficult year and continues to be for everybody, but hopefully you got to take some time away with your loved ones and uh, enjoy some plenty of chocolate like I did. This month, I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Liam Watson. He may be familiar to some people in that you might have undertaken some of his training. He is an expert in the area of student drug use and addiction, and he certainly cleared up a few things for me. I thought I knew a little bit or a thing or two about student drug use, but actually, I didn't know much at all. So hopefully this episode will be as just as much a learning moment for you as it was for me. You might have noticed as well, I'm kind of missing my partner in crime this month. I don't have Rob with me. I feel like a limb has been missing. Uh, Rob is away this month, so I'm flying solo, but hopefully uh, this episode will still be just as enjoyable without you listening to his dulcet tones as well. In the meantime, hope you enjoy this episode. As always, send us your feedback via email to freefoodpod at gmail.com or send us a tweet at freefoodpod. Liam, you are very welcome to episode 16. Yeah, episode 16 of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. How are you today? I'm I'm very well, and I'm really honoured to be on a podcast with such a fantastic theme song. Uh, that you're too kind, and we didn't pay you to say that, so <laughs> thank you so much. And I can't take credit for that theme song. What I will say is that a very good friend of mine who wants to remain nameless uh, just sent it to me one day, and we love it. <laughs> I love it too. It's great. <laughs> I've got a little confession to make in that when I was uh, when we plan our podcast episodes, I was having a chat with my boss at the University of Leeds and he was asking me about the podcast and he said to me, do you know who'd be great in your podcast? And I said, who? He said, Liam Watson. I did brilliant training with him. He is so good. You should definitely contact him. And I was like, actually, I've done his training and that's a really good idea. And here you are. Oh, great. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> so um obviously prior to this episode we talked about a couple of things in terms of what this episode could cover and we are going to very much focus on drugs and alcohol use amongst the student community and yeah. I guess you know the obvious thing the elephant in the room is to talk about how COVID uh, yeah. right from the start mention the c-word how has COVID impacted uh, student substance drug abuse? What are you seeing in the work that you do? Because obviously you deliver a lot of training to people mm. in higher ed generally. And I guess you're probably at, you're probably getting people coming to you and talking to you about this and asking them to help them and deliver training. Is that kind of, mm. would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting, really, sort of tracking how uh, COVID is, has changed substance use, particularly amongst students, of course. And, but, you know, generally speaking, and, and this applies to students as well, we've seen a slight decrease in stimulant drugs like cocaine and particularly MDMA ecstasy. Mm. And that's because, of course, you know, for a lot of people, they associate drugs like MDMA with going out and, you know, partying in clubs. But what has become apparent is that there's been a big increase in uh drugs that kind of sedate you and dampen down brain activity like xanax like uh alcohol but also drugs that maybe people are more used to using by themselves uh, for their mental health so there's also been a, uh, an increase in the use of drugs like ketamine as well so it's not surprising really that drugs that people associate with kind of a big night out have dropped slightly, um, but drugs which kind of um, ease anxiety, um, drugs that slow down brain activity seem to be more popular. Obviously, drugs like cannabis are, are, are popular, you know, whether there's a pandemic or not. But, um, but uh, you know, what, um, what some of the research has indicated is that um, certainly drug supply and drug use uh, hasn't gone away because of COVID. If anything, you know, for some people it has increased and 
there was uh, some research done a short while ago, which was showing that students, uh, about 58% of students had used recreational drugs um, since the beginning of this academic year. And not surprisingly, of course, cannabis, 86% uh, of those that had used had used cannabis, but 50% of those that had used had used ketamine. And that actually, after cannabis, was the second most popular drug. I mean, I am one of those people that, you know, you think of drugs and you think of a big night out. I'm very naive when it comes to understanding a lot about drugs. I am the first to admit that. And I certainly learned quite a bit from doing your particular online program a couple of months back. But what was interesting to me is the rise in those using drugs to dampen brain activity. Because to me, that sentence in itself is quite alarming that you would dampen brain activity. And I think it, it's probably a lot to do with just a general rise in anxiety or just stress and being anxious about student life. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's certain drugs and alcohol would be one of them, of course. Uh, alcohol, um, drugs like Xanax and uh, pregabalin, um, which is a prescription drug. And they released this um, sedating brain chemical called GABA. And GABA basically slows down brain activity. And this is why, of course, alcohol is often associated with anxiety relief, because it releases the GABA into the brain. And then you kind of stop overthinking things, stop uh, worrying about things that might happen in the future. And, you know, anxiety has been referred to as fear of the future. And, uh, you know, so it's not surprising, really, with COVID and all the, you know, mental health issues that that's raised for students and, you know, dare I say it, staff in universities, that drugs which then just slow down brain activity, which kind of takes the edge off of life, um, have increased in, in, in popularity. The problem is, of course, is that, you know, these substances have uh, real potential for addiction. And ironically, of course, um, you know, many people will turn to substances like alcohol and, you know, like uh, Xanax and diazepam because of anxiety. But if those substances are taken on a regular basis, they will actually increase anxiety. Because what happens is if you're flooding your brain unnaturally, as it were, with too much GABA, um, the brain likes to have an equal balance of GABA, which is like the sedating brain chemical, and then glutamates, which are the stimulant brain chemicals. So things like um, cortisol and adrenaline. Now, our brain likes to have an equal balance of those two because sometimes we need to jump out of bed, go to university, do stuff. Get on with life. <laughs> yeah, sort out all these student problems and, and then, you know, do shopping on the way home. <laughs> and then there's other times, of course, that we as human beings need to relax, meditate, watch Netflix and then go to sleep. So our brain likes to have an equal balance of GABA and glutamate. But if you are, for example, you know, taking anti-anxiety medication on a daily basis, particularly things like Xanax, which are particularly strong, then or drinking on a daily basis, of course, then what, what can happen is the, the brain is flooded with a lot of GABA. But because the brain likes to have this equal balance, what you know, neuroscientists refer to as homeostasis. As soon as the, if you like, the anti-anxiety drug has worn off, your brain compensates by giving you a big spike in stimulant brain chemicals. This is why, of course, a lot of people the morning after a night of heavy drinking will get anxiety. Or as we as we call it in Ireland, the fear. The fear. The fear is exactly what I'm talking about. The fear, anxiety, some students refer to it as, what that is the morning after is you're getting a big spike in stimulant brain chemicals, which is giving you uh, a dry mouth, a racing heart, and a racing mind. 
The problem is, is that if in your psychology, you think, well, the cure for anxiety is to have another drink or take some more Xanax, then of course, that's the hook of addiction is that you start taking it to get a positive and then you have to keep taking it to prevent the negative. So it becomes this vicious cycle almost. You know, looking at some of the drugs that you mentioned there, you know, my first question obviously is how are students or anybody accessing this? Obviously, we're aware of dealers coming onto campus or parking nearby, but, you know, stuff is arriving by post as well. How how are people accessing this? And how do they know that it's even safe to use and it's, it is what it says it is? Mm. Well, what, what's happened during during lockdown, during COVID, um, which was already starting to happen, but as with many things in society, you know, the pandemic is kind of... Uh, accelerated it is that you know increasing numbers of students now will be buying these substances on either instagram snapchat or on the the dark web you know even before covid you know i know a lot of universities were having kind of uh, packages arriving which uh, you know obviously how do you know what's in it when there's just a, a jiffy bag but Certainly for, you know, lots and lots of students I've spoken to, they have now just got used to, particularly if they're buying in bulk, going onto the dark web and paying with things like Bitcoin, you know, these types of cryptocurrencies which can't be traced, and then, you know, literally having the drugs posted to them in their horse residence or, or whatever. And, of course, you know, when these packages arrive, they... They're just like a, a jiffy bag with somebody's name and address on, you know, so there's not a big label on saying drugs inside or anything like that. Handle with care, caution. <laughs> yeah, I do know stories of colleagues in accommodation who have uh, intercepted uh, packages, but it, normally it's quite obvious as to what it is, or it's like those canisters where you can hear what it is, so you have a pretty good clue that you can actually take this package and probably hold it or report it to the police, like what you should do. Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, the canisters you're referring to is is nitrous uh, oxide, which um, you know in the past uh, people maybe referred to as laughing gas. Uh, many students these days refer to it as NOS. That's basically short for nitrous oxide. It's not actually illegal because because nitrous oxide can be bought legally for making things like whipped cream and for coffee machines and this type of thing and for other catering purposes. It's not illegal to buy it. So it's an interesting point that you raise, Rebecca, because would universities then seize it from a student if they aren't breaking the law. Now, I do, know, I do know of one university where a student had 500 of these nitrous oxide canisters delivered to his halls of residence. And when they asked him what it was for, he said that he just really loved baking cakes. <laughs> and massive, of course he did. Yeah, he's a massive fan of Mary Berry. And, um, Who isn't, Liam? Who isn't a fan? And they decided to confiscate them, but give them, give them back to the student at the end of term. You know, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, I mean, obviously we had this, uh, particularly when all of the legal highs were at their um, peak, you know? You know, do we ban a student from using a substance which is completely legal? Well, what are some examples that maybe you've seen in the sector? You know, what are the approaches that people have done in terms of, you know, without naming anybody or naming any universities, but what are some, some of the kind of approaches people have done to either confiscate drugs or, you know, what is their pro their stance as a university? Because for most universities, not all, mm. it's a zero drugs policy, it's a zero drugs approach, um, you know, no tolerance whatsoever. So what have you seen or anything, you know, innovative? Well, it, it's interesting what you mentioned about zero tolerance, because, I'm, I'm, you know, that would, I'm assuming, apply to illegal substances. But... When we're talking about substances which either are legal, they're maybe prescribed, or where they're not covered by the Misuse of Drugs Act, that's a different 
issue altogether, isn't it? Because drugs which are deemed to be illegal for people to possess and use is just a tiny number of substances that are available. I think it's, you know, it's important to say that you know, when we're talking about people with things like drug addictions, um, that m- most of the kind of hardcore drug addicts, if you like, in the UK never touch an illegal substance. They will be addicted to substances like painkillers, whether they're prescribed painkillers or over-the-counter painkillers, uh, maybe you know, if they're, uh, um, addicted to drugs like alcohol, tobacco. You know, so so when, when I talk about drugs issues, I'm not necessarily talking about illegal drugs. I'm talking about, you know, substances which change our our you know our mood and uh, that people would use for that reason. And that is generally, I think, what we're seeing is that you know an increase in students who are taking substances that, for whatever reason, they just want to escape their current reality mm. for a period of time. And so we talked about, you know, ketamine and those ones where it kind of dampens your brain activity, which again, I just find that so alarming. Again, I'm completely naive at drug use. I'll give you a fun story. I went to a gig a couple of years ago with my husband. There's a gig that we always wanted to go to. And I was really amazed at the openness at which people who are attending that were taking drugs and like popping pills. Because for me, it's a very secret thing. But actually... It's so common now that people just talk about it openly. They take it in a very open way. Mm. Um, It's not like as much of a secret as Mm. maybe it was when I was going to university uh, 20 odd years ago. But Mm. and that's kind of shocked me, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah, certainly over the last handful of years, I think for for people who have drug like cocaine, you know, cocaine is uh, obviously it's a class A drug. Obviously, the penalties associated with supplying that to a student are very uh, severe. You know, the problem with it, of course, is, and I think you know, the whole issue about drug laws is is something that we really need to tackle. But from a student's point of view, if a student is, for example, going on to, I know, the dark web or even just going on to Instagram and buying a gram of cocaine, a lot of people have said to me, what, what, what becomes very apparent to them quickly is that if they buy more than one gram, the price comes down. Now, what, what then can happen, of course, is people think, well, if I'm paying £60 for a gram of cocaine, if I buy... 10 grams i'm only paying 40 quid but i know all my mates in the hall's residence want to use cocaine so i'll just sell it to them and then i get my drugs for free and make a few quid the problem with this of course is that we've now got you know university students in prison for doing exactly that because class a drug dealing is of course a, a, a crime that people go to prison for. And some of these students, of course, would, I know it sounds a bit odd, but they wouldn't even consider themselves to be drug dealers because they're just supplying their mates in the halls. And then of course, by some chance, they get caught and then get sentenced to seven years in prison. Which has a dramatic impact on their, on their future prospects. And it could be just a moment in time where they were opportunist or they decided to try something for peer pressure because everybody else is doing it. And they were just curious, as so many people are. And then they became an you know, an entrepreneur about it. And that is really sad and really unfortunate that that occurs. And, you know, it still shocks me at the, that cocaine is, you know, you think of that drug as being one for the rich, for the elitist, and it was, I guess, for quite a long time, but actually it's extremely prevalent now in society. Well, we've never had so many people in the UK using cocaine, but what is interesting from a sort of a, a well-being point of view, from a physical health point of view, from a mental health point of view, is that cocaine has never been so pure you know, 10 years ago um, at Glastonbury uh, Festival, two fa- 2010, 
um, 11 years ago now, uh, the average purity of a gram of cocaine was about 15%. Now, you know, 11 years later, the average purity of a gram of cocaine in the UK is about 75%. And the price has remained, you know, uh, stable. A lot of people think, well, that's brilliant because then it's not full of all these, you know, nasty adulterants, which people think is what causes harm. Rat poison. You always hear rat poison being in it for some reason. And that's the that's, an, that's a real urban myth, this idea that people would put things like rat poison in drugs. Because I remember speaking to a dealer in Bristol and um, she was saying that, firstly, she doesn't want to kill her customers because that doesn't make... She's an ethical dealer. <laughs> that doesn't make great business sense to kill your customers. But if if she did put rat poison in a drug and then somebody died, these days, of course, through mobile phone records, they'd trace it back to her and she'd get arrested. And then the third thing she said was, have you seen the cost of rat poison? <laughs> and it turned out <laughs> that rat poison is really expensive, more expensive than the actual drug. So it doesn't make sense on any level, but the important point from student well-being and safety is that a lot of people these days are, you know, buying these kits on the internet which test your drug, and of course they're, you know, they're buy- they're getting their cocaine, they're getting their MDMA, they're getting their ketamine, they're putting this little chemical onto a little, you know, a uh, few bits of powder. I'm waiting to see what colour it changes to. And then maybe it changes dark red because it's very pure cocaine or very pure MDMA. And then they think, brilliant, I can take as much as I like. It's safe. And one of the things I really, really emphasise is that purity does not equate to safety. That is a really, really important point for students to take on board. Because what has happened, you know, we, we're currently experiencing the highest ever rate of drug deaths in the UK ever. And it's not because of adulterants. What it's been down to is that drugs have never been so pure, never been so strong, never been so potent. And that is what is leading to the, this increase in drug deaths. But the the thing that I'm particularly interested in around all these issues around substance use is is mental health. And we have also never seen so many people being admitted to psychiatric hospitals with sort of drug-induced psychosis, you know, where people have lost touch with reality, but also where the mental health has you know problems have been massively exacerbated or even caused by the frequent use of these powerful substances one of the great ironies of course in the in this field is that it's often said that those people that should most stay away from drinking drugs are those people most drawn to drink and drugs and in this case that would be students mm-hmm. with who already have existing issues around depression, anxiety, or obviously things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, because they want to self-medicate. And just going back to your point about, you know, drugs have never been so pure. That is certainly a myth that you busted for me, because... When you see that somebody has unfortunately lost their life or a number of people have because they were using drugs from the same dealer or say, you know, they've shared something, your first thought is that it must have been a bad batch, that it was full of something it shouldn't have been. But actually, the reality is they're taking more than what is safe to do because it's too pure. And I spoke to my husband about this, who works in kind of... um the pharmaceutical world and he was like yeah like drugs are so much more ready ready available like you said and it's the purity is the issue and I think you know you you had shared before there are instances where people now can go I think a program where people could bring their drugs to get tested to see if it was okay and then they would decide based on the results whether to use it or, or and then they would get mm-hmm. advice whether to how much they should use or how mm-hmm. much they shouldn't use 
And that's quite interesting approach. Yeah, this, this is, it's particularly interesting for universities, I think, because what's been happening recently around student deaths and drug use uh, isn't that the, the students have taken something that's adulterated, it's that essentially these students have overdosed. That term, a drug's overdose. I don't know about you, Rebecca, but for most people, they just think of heroin. You think of heroin, yeah. You think of people who've gone, who've been using drugs for quite a long time. I automatically think of, for some reason, I think of pills. I don't know if that shows my age or anything, but I think of people intentionally overdosing as well. I know people overdose by accident, but they're the kind of images that come to mind for me that are probably a little bit old school and a bit outdated. But what's really important is is, is that we realise that when drugs are very pure, very potent, if you like, when they are so easily accessible through things like Snapchat, Instagram, the dark web, um, people have to be you know, more careful. And you know, the issue about drug testing, this is not testing individuals, but testing the actual substance, you know, there are these sort of uh, pilot studies, obviously pre-COVID, where you know, in Bristol City Centre, they were testing uh, people's you know, illegal drugs in the city centre before they were going into clubs. And, but what, um, this is done by an organisation called The Loop, and they do a lot of the drug testing at things like festivals. Now, what The Loop have always been very careful to do, which is completely good practice, is not just test the substance so that the person thinks, oh, this is pure ketamine, so I can take as much as I like, they then give them advice and do a consultation with them. And of course, um, if the drug comes back as very pure, then they emphasize, you need to be very careful about dosage. But also, you know, all drugs have positives, otherwise, why would students want to take them? But all substances have a downside. And of course, especially in terms of things like mental health, I think it's really important that you know that students are aware that drugs, by their very nature, cause chemical imbalances. That's that's why we want to take them. <laughs> but if your mental health is a bit fragile, if you are prone to depression, then obviously drugs like uh, cocaine you know, anaesthetic drugs like ketamine can be very attractive because they give you a bit of relief. But what we know is that it might be great when you're actually under the influence of the substance because, you know, you take cocaine, you feel energised, you feel euphoric. But then when the drug wears off, when you're on the come down, that, of course, can be very dangerous for people who maybe, you know, start thinking about self-harming and maybe even, you know, start thinking about suicide. You know, in my sort of spare time, I, I work um, uh, as a Samaritan and, um, and you know, as you probably would imagine, we get a lot of calls from people who have both mental illnesses and mental health issues, but also are self-medicating with powerful substances. For many people, of course, the downside is, of course, that their mood dips so low that they start having what's referred to as suicide ideation. They start really kind of thinking a lot about taking their own lives. So especially in the current climate where, you know, I've spoken to students at Samaritans who are literally just spending all their time in a little box room, not seeing and what that's doing to their mental health you know and for people who are prone to isolating anyway you know the circumstances that we have at the moment I think whether they're using substances or not is really sort of dangerous 
And when you speak about those kind of calm down times, that's quite a scary place to be in for the individual. And but those around them as well, mm. who may not be aware they've taken something or are regularly taken something. And then it's also a very scary place for the professional staff in higher ed to deal with whoever that may be, if it's somebody in a department or an accommodation or if it's, you know, counselling. Um, it is a tricky space to be in because sometimes you're being presented with things that you may not have seen before or you're not equipped to handle. It's it's quite a scary place to be in. And obviously there are certain drugs which, you know, ketamine, ketamine is unusually popular amongst university students. We've got four times the rate of ketamine use in university than in the outside world, if you like. Why, why is that, do you think, though? What, what, what's the attraction? Well, what, what you've got with ketamine is a drug which is almost like um, multiple drug use, but in one substance. Now, it's, it's very affordable. You know, often we're talking about about £20 a gram, but you don't need to use very much to get the effects. It's one of these substances which just a slight increase in dosage can really change the the, the effect of the drug. So if people are taking a, a tiny little, um, what people often refer to as a bump of ketamine, which would be like, um, you know, some people uh, use their kind of house keys and just get a bit of ketamine on the end of their key and then snort it. So that's what's referred to as keying. Um, so if somebody's just keying a little bump of ketamine, it it works a bit like cocaine in that people feel exhilarated, they want to party, they want to chat. If people do a couple more bumps of ketamine, then people start feeling a little bit spacey and, you know, uh, music sounds a bit different because it's a it's a disassociative anesthetic and if people you know use more and often we're only talking about you know for some people about a tenth of a gram they will enter into a state which is often referred to as being in a k-hole now the k-hole is when people lose touch with reality essentially it's a bit like being in psychosis what made me think of this was when you said about people working in student support or accommodation services coming across a student because when um, a student is in a K-hole, they're under the effect of an anaesthetic. So often a student will be almost like a statue. They will be just like stood there, often with a gormless look on their face because of the muscle relaxant qualities of the anaesthetic. But because it is a disassociative, it disassociates you from reality, that student might be having a great time. You know, in their head, they're playing rugby with some pink dolphins at Twickenham or something. To the university staff who come, may come across somebody, it can be very frightening because this person doesn't know where they are, they don't know what's going on, and... They're, they're tripping, as it were, but their body can seem like they've had a stroke. It's not unusual for not just staff, but other students to come across somebody who's in a K-hole and then just immediately ring for an ambulance. Because, of course, they think, oh, my God, you know, they've given some sort of medical emergency. When I say that, you know, for some people, it only takes about a tenth of a gram, bear in mind that ketamine is often only about £20 for a gram. That's two pounds to escape reality. Now, this is why I think uh, this year we've seen a lot more students using drugs like ketamine because reality is pretty crap at the moment. So for two quid, I can escape reality by just snorting a little bit of this powder. And if you're essentially locked up in a box room in a halls of residence, your anxiety is persuading you not to contact anybody. Escaping reality is quite an attractive proposition for people. Mm. And, you know, when you talk about paying two quid to escape reality, one, wow, 
how cheap is that? But also, I'm concerned with the easiness of being able to do that because of the price factor and also because of how you can buy drugs literally within a nanosecond on social media. So you mentioned Instagram and Snapchat. What are the ways in which people are purchasing it? I think I think if anybody wants to present themselves as a dealer, they've got, you know, they use emojis and different kind of like icons to say what they have available and what how much it costs essentially. It's very it's it's very easy, isn't it? It, it, it is unbelievably easy and both from a buying drugs point of view on Snapchat and Instagram, but also to, it's very, very easy to become a dealer. And what we've got now with social media is the barrier to entry um, for becoming a, a dealer has now, you know, so low that essentially anybody could just do it tonight. What what is happening is that there is there are like you said, Rebecca, there are different emojis for different substances. So, for example, well, ketamine, which we just mentioned, because some people refer to it as a horse tranquilizer. The emoji for ketamine is a horse. For things like cocaine, it's uh, maybe a snowflake or a white line. But so each drug. I won't go through all of them, but each drug has its own emoji. And what people will often do is, is maybe on their profile, they will uh, use a term, which it may not mean that much to people listening to this, but they use a term called flavor chaser. Initially, it was, it's, it, flavored, uh, it was to do with cannabis because there's different flavors of cannabis. So a flavor chaser was basically somebody looking to buy cannabis. But what has happened is that that term flavor chaser is now basically coded language for I'm in the market for buying drugs. And then what people will do underneath flavor chaser is they will put different emojis depending on what drug they want to purchase. So if you said flavor chaser and then you had a um, horse, a pill symbol and then a snowflake other people know you're wanting to buy ketamine mdma ecstasy and cocaine and then they will then try you know they will offer to follow you you follow them back and then of course you can dm each other and then do the deal it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, the ease of which and then the kind of secret language yeah. of it all. And for most people, if they came across somebody's profile and it said flavour chaser and they had a picture of a horse underneath, <laughs> they would think, what, what's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> who, who would know unless you know? And, and that's how it kind of you know, stays kind of in-house, if you like, is that people that know, know all this. Mm. And what's interesting then is that, you know, the business of drugs is a whole world into itself. So I imagine there are things like turf wars and people who have patches on certain university campuses and who cover certain areas. That surely is something I, I've no doubt. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have to realise that a lot of students will be selling to other students, but also, you know, a lot of dealers, you know, student cities are great you know places for business and we know that um a lot of dealers these days will have their own um and i sound old but they they have their own business cards what um i came across uh, one recently and it said tony snow and then it said 24 uh 7 and then on the back of the card it had a mobile phone number and this guy would basically put these cards underneath the doors of students in halls of residence. Oh, yeah, we, we get them every month. Yeah, everybody would be familiar with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, Rebecca, but when, certainly when I was uh, growing up, you know, back in the 1920s, um, when, I was, <laughs> when, when I was growing up, if somebody wanted to buy illegal drugs, particularly class A drugs, you'd have to know somebody who knew somebody who had an older brother, who knew somebody from, you know, you had to be like a detective 
to work out who to buy from. These days, of course, for students, the drugs kind of come to them and then it's almost like they have to then make decision, oh, do I want to take it or not? And that's what's different today, particularly with social media, because many students will come across adverts for drugs even when they're not looking for them. But but that sentence there that you said, the drugs come to them, that's the worry for me because, yes, we'll have students who will have come to university haven't tried some things, but equally we'll have a lot of people who have never tried anything, who have no intention of trying anything, but for one reason or another end up trying whatever it is, going into that world. And I, I wonder as professionals in the sector, you know, what's our role in awareness raising and preparing them for that and doing our bit like a zero tolerance policy is great and everything but actually is there a space for our conversation about acknowledging that this is just what some students do and this is our reality but so how do we teach them to remain safe and to what to be aware of as opposed to just trying to be a bit I don't know mom and dad about it maybe one of the reasons why I'm really glad that you invited me onto this podcast to talk about these issues is because, you know, I'm going to ask a, a controversial question. Why are universities so scared to talk about drugs? Well, it's going to be the $54 million question. It's got to come down to part of it. will come down to, you know, brand and image. And you're not just selling a university to a student. You're selling it to a student's family and their parents and their guardians and you know, their siblings who may come after them. So mm. uh, nobody wants negative press. The question is, if we are really serious about student health and well-being, we need to be talking about these issues because everybody knows that student, you know, particularly for you know, undergraduates, their student years are time for experimenting, their times for being their own person. And we know that for many students, that will involve maybe experimenting with different substances. If we're really serious about student health, well-being, and, you know, when I say health, I mean mental health, we need to be talking about these issues in a really open way. Because we know that a lot of students will come to harm because of things like what I mentioned earlier, overdosing. Because they don't understand that things like purity doesn't equate to safety. They don't understand that just taking a tenth of a gram of ketamine will send them into a K-hole where for the next five hours, they don't know who they are, where they are, and of course, are often in dangerous situations. So, you know, I know in a lot of university uh, uh, towns and cities, you know, students have been under the influence of drugs like ketamine and then fall into rivers and drowned. I know often, you know, students are reckless and just want to kind of get off their faces, but by talking openly about issues around what we call in this field harm reduction, the bottom line is with harm reduction is the way to stay completely safe is not to take the substance. But if you are taking this substance, these are the things that are really important to bear in mind. Now, of course, for decades, of course, we've applied that to drugs like alcohol. So we don't say to students, don't you ever, ever drink. Otherwise, you'll end up like George Best, <laughs> because they just laugh at us. Yeah, it's more. It's a. It's a drug that's just commonly accepted, isn't it? And you don't even think of it as a drug. Well, you know, uh, we know that alcohol is, of course, you know, one of the most dangerous drugs, you know, known, known to man, really. But you know, it. What I'm saying, the point I'm making is that even though these substances are currently illegal we still need to be talking about them openly and honestly because students are using them. Now, whether we think they should be using them or not, we have to get practical here. It's a bit like sex education, isn't it? You know what I mean? We just need to talk about, you know, things that are practical to students and which will serve their well-being. And I think 
having a zero tolerance policy, I completely understand it from a legal point of view, because obviously under the Misuse of Drugs Act, if you are knowingly allowing a student to take drug illegal drugs on your premises, then of course the university itself is liable. So okay. yeah, it's under section eight of the Misuse of Drugs Act. Now so I completely understand it from a hard and fast legal point of view. But we also under, have to understand that for many students, they will get into problems just basically through ignorance, through experimentation, you know, overdosing, and really just not understanding enough about maybe how different substances mix together. That is another really well, I was just going to say, yeah, because that's another very dangerous area where actually a lot of education is probably needed. And, you know, I think there was a, a university a couple of years ago that did a bit of a campaign around how to stay safe when taking drugs. And there was a lot of negative press about that because it was almost like, oh, you're condoning it and you're actually or that you're supporting the use of drugs at university. And, and actually they came out and said, I can't remember which university it was. I want to say Sheffield, but I don't know if I'm correct in saying that. But, you know, they were saying, actually, we know this happens. Hmm. We're not happy it happens, but it happens. This is student life right now, but we want to make them and keep them as, as safe as possible. And and I'm actually kind of for that stance. You know, I think we do, sh we should be doing some campaign, you know, some awareness raising around that. But what equally is interesting is that we're seeing some kind of clubs and societies pop up in some universities where I think there's a psychedelic society. Am I correct? In Greenwich, maybe, I think, or another university where students are actually, you know, having conversations about drug use and maybe campaigning for um, legalized substance to be allowed within the UK. It's, it's really interesting. I, I, I think just to finish off what we were just talking about before I talk about things like psychedelics, but is is that I think we owe it to students to provide them with practical harm reduction safety advice about the use of sub substances. We know that some substances, of course, when mixed together, can be really dangerous. But many students won't know that. It's just something which, you know, I, I, I think universities, I know why universities don't want to tackle that. Because universities are big businesses and they don't want to put off their customers. And their customers aren't necessarily just the students, they're the students' parents. You know, it, it was Sheffield that you were referring to earlier. And... You know, we've got a media where if somebody sticks their head above the parapet and then says, oh, no, we're going to tackle this from a very practical point of view because we want our students to be safe and well, then the Daily Mail or whatever will often put it in an article saying, what on earth is this university doing? You know, they're giving advice on how to take ecstasy safely. But... So, I end up, yeah, I understand it completely. And I understand that at a kind of vice principal, uh, vice chancellor level, sorry, um, that they really just don't want to talk about it. I definitely think there's space to start the conversation in the way that you mentioned. I don't think it's something that we should be shying away from. I think there is, and I think those conversations are happening, but maybe they're just not publicized as much as we think they are. But, um, you know, most of the support that we give in this area to students is just is effective signposting, you know, when you've got to the addiction stage, unfortunately, um, as opposed to um, the conversations that we're talking about here and actually talking about it a bit more openly yeah. and in an honest way. And we could probably achieve some really interesting results by doing that, or at least starting to think in that way and being a bit more proactive in our approach. Yeah. And I'll tell you the people that are who are leading this debate and trying to get change and that's students. No surprise. <laughs> you know, there are, there's organisations like um, Students for Safer Drug Policy. Uh, I hope I've got a name right. But there's all these student groups now that are campaigning for, for these issues to be discussed. Only 15% of students, when they were asked, could remember having any 
safety or harm reduction advice about drugs. In in universities, within the university context, just in their... While at university. So bear in mind that research is showing that over 50% of students have used illegal recreational drugs since the beginning of this term, yeah, this uh, academic year. Um, it just doesn't make sense to, you know, just pretend it's not going on. Mm. Now, coming to the issue you mentioned about psychedelics, yes, lots of universities now have student psychedelic societies. When we're talking about drugs and mental health, I think we have to obviously um, realise that for many people, for many students, there is a big link between substance use and mental health. And that is that their substance use greatly improves their mental health. Funny enough, that's not an angle that a lot of newspapers, like the Daily Mail, would want to lead on. Doesn't sell papers, uh, Liam, <laughs> or direct them to their website, I should yeah. say. No, you know, I'm not, obviously, I'm not um, promoting this or condoning it, but we do know that obviously substances um, affect mental health, but it's not always, of course, negatively. I mentioned ketamine, I've mentioned MDMA. Both of those substances are now being used, in, particularly in the, in the United States, for the treatment of mental health conditions. So with ketamine, there is a type of uh, therapy in, in the US now where um, it's kind of like, obviously it's in clinical settings where people are given a very, you know, measured known dose of ketamine. And because the drug helps people to kind of open up, uh, same with MDMA, which has been used for uh, PTSD, but with ketamine, what they found is that with people who've got what's called treatment resistant depression, so they've been, you know, given SSRI antidepressants like Prozac and Citalopram and whatever, they've had therapy and none of it seems to have shifted their depression. That a small dose of ketamine under, obviously under clinical uh, settings, helps people to then almost um, rewire part of their brain and think about themselves and life differently. What we're, when we're talking about drugs like ketamine and MDMA, MDMA is, is being used, like I said, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, the MDMA, the ecstasy, if you like, um, the MDMA is often you know given in an injectable form and uh, a liquid form. And then people receive the therapy while they're under the influence. Okay. Yeah. And what we know with a drug like MDMA is that it's known as an empathogenic drug. So it increases feelings of empathy between people. And when people are under the influence of it, they can think about their past traumas. And if you like, again, look at it in a different way. And for many people, of course, it's been life changing. And with the treatment of PTSD, using you know MDMA uh, assisted therapy, the results are remarkable. You know, and these are people that have been through you know a rape, been through trauma in the Afghanistan war, and with psychedelics as well. You know, there's for anybody who is struggling with their mental health, obviously they would have to be incredibly um, careful about using psychedelics. But we do know that for many students, of course, there is a growing interest in the field of psychedelics. It's just important really that we kind of acknowledge these things. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a thing now called uh, ayahuasca tourism, and I don't know if you're familiar with ayahuasca, but... I can't say that I am, Liam, no. <laughs> it comes from this sort of natural growing plant in South America. And it's a, it's a psychedelic. I mean, you know, if people maybe kind of think of magic mushrooms, it's kind of along those sorts of lines, but different. So people at the moment, there's a lot of people going over to places like Peru, 
where they have retreats and then people you know led by one of these kind of uh, shamanic healers will then take ayahuasca um under you know very controlled uh, settings and you know again many people come back feeling like a different person um from for a from a positive point of view again with all of this i've got to always say of course because it's very very important that for people who have serious issues around their mental health they really 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 would need to think all these things through the problem we've got today is that many students are self-medicating with drugs like cannabis xanax you know ketamine and it's not doing them any favors at all in terms of their mental health but what they're seeking of course is just an escape from day-to-day reality and the other thing I wanted to touch on as well, and um, just conscious of time, is actually the rise and use of study drugs as well, because that's the other side of it. You want to escape from reality, but then you want to do really well in your exams and you want to be able to power through study and get amazing marks so you can graduate and get a great job. And again, this is another fascinating area, the the use of study drugs. And I've kind of read a bit about what's happened in the States um, and also students at A-level taking study drugs, which just blows my mind. Again, I'm very naive to all of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people listening might, might not even know what we're referring to, but what we're referring to is, is um, to give them their, their official title, is cognitive enhancement drugs. Now, what I mentioned earlier about uh, prescription drugs and, you know, if you like, legal drugs, these would often come under that category because... In the UK, there's one particular substance which kind of really leads the market, and that, that's a thing called uh, modafinil. Some students as well will use uh, a substance called uh, Adderall, um, which is from the US. But in the main, students who are taking these so-called study drugs or cognitive enhancement drugs will go for modafinil. Now, modafinil is a prescription drug but it's, it's prescribed to people who have this sleeping condition called narcolepsy. And narcolepsy is that condition where people just keep, you know, nodding off, going, you know, uh, some people might have been doing it during this podcast, but... Um, <laughs> no, no, wake up. If you are, wake up. <laughs> but um, so it's a stimulant drug. Um, and with that, many students and... You know, the research shows we're not talking here about a tiny minority. You know, some research that was done at places like Cambridge University and Oxford, they were, particularly for final year students, they were showing, you know, maybe a quarter to a third of final year students are taking a study drug. These, of course, are completely different from the substances we've mentioned so far in that people aren't taking them to get high, they're taking them to get higher grades. (laughs) And we all know how competitive life is at the moment. And what many students find is that by taking modafinil or, or Adderall, it just gives them the ability to stay on task to maybe revise, you know, for hours on end without kind of losing concentration. It also seems to give people a kind of clarity of thought. All of those things I just mentioned, of course, are very attractive to students. Maybe very attractive to many people, <laughs> you know, but... I could do with some clarity at that most days. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But um, it, it's one of these areas where it does raise a lot of sort of ethical concerns. Students aren't breaking the law by taking modafinil. And many students will take it for a very, you know, a a specific amount of time for a specific reason. And that will be to do the best they can in their exams. So here's um, here's an ethical question, or I'm not sure if it's ethical, but... Are they, is that considered cheating? 
by taking something like that? That's the first thing that comes to mind. Is someone, you know, by taking that drug, are you going to do better than the person sitting next to you who's not taking that drug? Is it considered to be cheating? Not expecting you to have the answer. Just think it's a really interesting discussion point. Absolutely. And it, it is such a, a such a great question because is it cheating? Now, is a student that's got really rich parents who doesn't have to get a job working in KFC or Gap to fund their, you know, learning, is that student cheating? Because they can, they don't have to work and they can just concentrate on their studies. You know, it's, it's a real, really interesting question, isn't it? Because it's it, it doesn't make people more intelligent. So the term smart drugs in maybe, of course, a little bit misleading because people think, well, if I just take them, I will be smarter. What it seem, what these drugs like modafinil seem to do is just give people the ability to stick with a task. Uh, it gives, obviously, you know, a bit of an increased energy. Because life is so competitive, because, you know, student life is so competitive, some people want to take it yeah, maybe to have a little bit of an edge, but it won't make them fantastic at their subject without putting the work in. I mean, there's one university I was at uh, uh, about two years ago, and they people in the wellbeing and counselling team told me about a student that was the, the prescribed dose of modafinil is one two hundred milligram tablet first thing in the morning. Now, this student thought, well, if these are smart drugs, then the more I take, the smarter I will be. <laughs> which, which, Bless. yeah, which ironically proved that she wasn't very smart. But um, so this student was taking 10 modafinil a day. Oh, God. Yeah. And, and do they have the same addictive qualities like other drugs that you discussed earlier? Not really. Um, it is a prescription drug, so obviously we know it's been through all the clinical trials. And any stimulant, anybody has just, you know, drank 12 cups of coffee in a day, you know that it may help if you just take have three cups of coffee to keep you alert. But if you have 12 cups of coffee, then you can't concentrate because you're a bit jittery. Maybe, do you know what I mean? You're your heart is racing and your mind is racing. So it's it's such a, a fascinating area because like you said earlier, Rebecca, we're now seeing this is a, a phenomenon really that for a number of years was basically in our universities. But what we're seeing is it escaping one end. So we're now seeing more people in workplaces, in industry, in different, you know, sorts of uh, professional settings taking modafinil. But what we're also seeing is escaping at the other end where, like you said, we're seeing now A-level students taking study drugs. And who knows where it could stop? Could we have GCSE students taking study drugs? The interesting thing about all of this is that this is a drugs issue where parents may actually be encouraging their son or daughter to take a drug. Really? Well, wow. If you've if you've got if your son, for example, is going to university and they're paying nine grand at least a year, you don't want them to come out with a two-two when maybe they could have got a two-one or a first. So I've heard of parents who've actually bought modafinil for their son or daughter. You know, when we're talking about student drug use, we're talking about a whole range of different types of drugs, you know, some which obviously are illegal and some which are legal and some, of course, which are, you know, prescribed, officially speaking, to actually sell modafinil to students, you would have to, as a medical drug, it's done under license. But it's not illegal for students to buy modafinil or to use modafinil. And what we've got, of course, is, is hundreds of websites. Some of them, of course, set up by students selling modafinil. 
So they're buying it in bulk from places like India and, you know, other places abroad. And obviously selling, you know, these strips of modafinil onto other students for like, I don't know, a pound a time or something and making a bit of money. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating what's what's going on. And dare I say it, I do know of some people who work in universities who take modafinil. And and this is the thing, you know, and I could talk about this subject all day because it is genuinely fascinating to me and hopefully fascinating to those listening in. But if you're taking it at A-level and then you're bringing it into university or it becomes part of your university experience, like where does it stop? Do you suddenly stop when you graduate? But when you talk about bringing it into the workplace, then you think of like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, and bankers and lawyers. You don't think of like, you know, your man down the road working in the office, like or anybody working that you are surrounding yourselves with in your job in universities. And I guess it prompts a wider discussion about just everyday challenges in life generally, the pressures we place upon ourselves and the pressures that society places upon us. And it's, it is again back into that vicious circle of like performance and wanting to be the best and do your best and like how and when can it end? It's, you know, I, I don't have the answers no, to it. I'm but, sure you but, don't either. You know, I think, in we're just at the very beginning really of understanding you know the positives that substances can play in our lives and you know these these um smart pills smart drugs cognitive enhancement drugs brain drugs whatever you people call them this is just the beginning in the future you know there will be i'm sure a whole range of so-called brain drugs that people take like people take vitamin vitamin pills today i'd like me i don't take my vitamin pills <laughs> i'm one of those people well maybe that's um a conversation for a future episode lee we could talk to you all day about this stuff absolutely fascinating and um i think what would be really good would be for you to share everybody how best we can reach out to you because obviously you do run a series of online courses um, and in a normal world they're probably in-person and face-to-face courses so how best can people reach you well um the the website is uh obviously all the w's and it's drugstraining.com the email address is office at drugstraining.com and the twitter is just at drugstraining and uh yeah i do i do run a course specifically for universities which is called students drugs booze and smart pills and uh we've got one of those courses running on zoom on the 7th of may yeah so if yeah please please contact me i've done training for a number of uh universities uh and i'd be really happy to uh to do it again so thank you and I've attended that training myself and we've only touched on a tiny minutia in this episode of all the things that you cover in your training and I'm really pleased to say and I really feel like an influencer saying this but Liam has very kindly offered out a discount code get us for those who are interested in attending that course so it's a 20% discount code if you quote uh, free food so uh, yeah I feel like a proper influencer yeah. I feel like we've made it now Liam when you give us a discount code <laughs> I'll send you some free drugs for plugging oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Lima. It was great to chat to you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rebecca.